wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that he revered the Lord, but now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you... Your servant has nothing here at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, go around and ask your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But he replied, There's not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil, and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. So, Lord, I, I thank you for your word that is going to come to us through your servant, David Husby. Speak to us, O oh Lord. Speak to us from your word. Pray that you anoint David afresh. And I thank you for this man of God who has served, um, served you for so long in the Covenant Church. And as he looks towards his retirement in the coming months, pray that you'd prepare him for the next journey in his life. So prepare our hearts as we look forward to receiving your word, O Lord. In the name of the risen Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Do be seated. Thank you. Good morning. You know, I was at this church about a year and a half ago and uh, I came to just kind of watch what you were doing because you were actually in in the worship service doing the refugee journey do you remember that were many of you here for that I'm so thankful that you would take that time to really try to understand what it's like for now over 70 million people in the world who are displaced thank you for your passion and your commitment and this is all part of the work of Covenant World Relief. As Boaz said, um, this has been my, kind of my latest and my last official position in the Covenant Church as I move towards retirement this, this summer. But in my 30, it's about 36 years of mission work, um, I'll have to say it's all been great. But this has been the most exciting ministry that I've been a part of. And I'm so thankful for the fact that this denomination, and some of you may not even know much about the, the Evangelical Covenant Church. I know when I married into it 37 years ago, I knew nothing. But I discovered that this, we were formed, you know, sometimes people form together for different reasons. There's theological issues, and there's sometimes ethnic issues. And there was a little bit of that. You may have heard that there was a, a lot of Swedish connection way back. I, I, I'm here to tell you that I'm not Swedish. I would not admit to it because I'm Norwegian and we don't like Swedes. So, but, this, but the main reason, 
that this group of churches that were, there were these little churches in the Midwest here that had come, many from, from Sweden, the, people, the immigrants had come, and they came together agreeing to disagree on some issues like baptism and other issues so that they could participate together in God's mission in the world. Because after all, that's why the church exists, right? Of course we're here for fellowship and to be equipped and all those things. But ultimately, we are different from any other organization, especially a club. We don't exist for ourselves. We exist for everyone out there. Right now, the world is gripped in fear of the coronavirus. And I admit, I, I'm wondering, what's going to happen? Where's, when's this thing going to stop? But you know what? Those of us who, as we come into Lent and look forward to the suffering of Jesus, the death and resurrection, we are people of hope. We're not people of fear. And you know, the, the coronavirus has spread to more than 80 countries now. More than uh, around 3,700 people have died. It's horrible. Do you know today, 25,000 children from the, for under the age of five will die? mostly of preventable illnesses. As we said, do you know that more than 70 million people are displaced due to conflict, economic issues, persecution, living in fear. 800, nearly 800 million people don't have access to clean water. One-third, one out of every three people in the world don't have access to a toilet. There are so many issues. There are about 25 million people in the world who are enslaved, whether it's in the sex industry or in some sort of bonded servitude. We live in a very broken world. But we are people of hope. And we get to be a part of that. And I hope today that you get a sense of a lot of these things you may not have heard before of these little programs going around the world, but we are connected with some people who are in difficult situations, but they live their life not in fear, they live their life in hope, knowing that we serve a God that will never abandon us. We are always in the palm of his hand, no matter what happens. So, sorry about that, but I just thought I needed to, to, to talk about the coronavirus because it just seems like it's just gripping us. Um, so I'm hoping this is going to work. Where we go? In one of these places, difficult places, just within the last month or so, in Idlib, in Syria, there's been this bombing, and the, there's been in all of the crisis, of the refugee crisis in Syria, which has been going on for more than eight years, they say right now is the worst it's ever been. We're not getting as much media attention because before the, a lot of the refugees were going to Europe, and there was a lot of attention on that. Now they have no place to go. They've shut the border. They're trying to get into Greece. It's desperate. I'm thankful that Covenant World Relief, as we work with local partners, there's an organization in Lebanon called Medical Teams International Lebanon who are working with people who are coming across the border. It's just right next to Lebanon. If you know your geography, Lebanon is right next to Syria. And in fact, the informal settlements where the refugees are living, some of them are within 30 minutes of the border. They're longing to go back home again, but they can't because there is no peace. 
I was supposed to be leaving for Lebanon in one week, one week from today. But because Lebanon itself as a country is now in chaos and there's insecurity, I can't go. But that's all the more reason we give thanks that we have faithful people there on the ground that in the midst of all the insecurity, there's some violence, there's, there's uh, all kinds of stuff going on that people are upset about, but they're there faithfully serving God, caring for these refugees. And there are a few people in this church that are already part of Covenant World Relief, and I want to thank you for being a part of that. And I want to talk a little bit more about some other areas, and I'll talk about some information in the back too. But So we're involved with refugee care. Yemen has been called in 2018 and 2019 the greatest humanitarian disaster in the world. Because of the civil war there, people are without food, without clothing, water, shelter, sanitation, it, is, it doesn't get much attention because CNN would never go there. <laughs> Most of these, we don't have people on the ground in Yemen. It's too dangerous. But yes, there are partners that Covenant World Relief is working with and we're able to especially focus on water and sanitation. You know, I believe that, this is very a simple explanation, but I believe that God, for each one of us, has placed in front of us this road, this path of life that he wants us to walk, and it's a, it's a path of transformation. You know, in some parts of the world right now, there are immediate crises, like the, the crisis in Syria, where we need to pour resources in. We need to work with these people who are hurting. But we don't stop when the crisis is over. And that's why Covenant World Relief actually focuses on the long haul. We focus on a, a kind of whole life transformation. And it's not just about the people out there. As we said in the video, <laughs> this transformation is for all of us. We're all on this journey. And being a part of these ministries around the world allows us to be impacted and transformed as people in those places get transformed as well. I'm thankful this morning to be able to talk about this passage in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. If you were raised in the church, you probably are familiar with this. If, you're not, if you weren't, you might not be familiar with this passage. But I, I was raised in a church, and I remember in Sunday school hearing this story. It's a nice story. It's a great story because there's a, there's a happy ending, and God does a great thing. But I want us to go a little bit deeper this morning and think about some of the implications for how we work even today in the world. So there's a, there's a situation where there is a widow who's in a very desperate condition, right? Now, I'm here to tell you today that widows remain in 2020 perhaps the most vulnerable people group in the world. In many places in the world, when a woman's husband dies, she is not allowed to take, have the house and the property. The family of the husband takes it. So she's left with nothing. In some cultures, the children are taken from her. In some places, she's lost her husband, so she's now unprotected. And it means in some cultures, there are men who will say she's available for us to use and abuse her. Widows are very desperate people 3,000 years ago and also today. And this was a desperate widow. 
Sometimes we also think of widows as just being elderly. Of course, there are elderly widows. But in the world today, in South Sudan, there are a lot of widows in their 20s. <laughs> There's been so much violence there. And I, from the sound of it, she still has two sons living with her. This is not an elderly widow. And she's lost her husband, and she's desperate. And she goes to the prophet and explains to him what's happened. And you know, the prophet's response was, it was actually amazing, especially the second question. His first question was natural. His first question, I hope all of us, every decent human being would ask this question. That is, he hears her desperation, he says, what can I do to help you? Why not? Why wouldn't anybody ask that question with that kind of desperation? But it's the second question that I'm here to say that we often either forget or don't even think about asking and that's he follows up after he says what what can i do to help you he says what do you have in your house you see a lot of times we look at people who are in desperate situations and we think oh we just gotta we gotta help these people they got nothing but the prophet says to her what do you have because the prophet already knows this is a man of God who knows how God works. We serve a God who, in his economy, uses what little there is, and then he multiplies it for his kingdom and his glory and does amazing things. So here he says, what do you have? And her answer is, basically, I've got nothing. Oh yeah, I've got a little bit of olive oil. Well, the prophet doesn't have a degree in international development, but the prophet's been walking with God, and so the prophet knows more than that. It's not in the passage, and I'm interjecting here. I hope it's not going to be heretical. <laughs> but I believe the prophet knows that this woman has more than just a little jar of oil. In fact, I'm going to ask you to shout out or speak out. What do you think this woman has besides just a little jar of oil? What else does she have? Okay, that's going to be the key, actually the empty jars. But, and I'm going to come back to that. What else? She's got faith. She's got a house, right? She's got two sons. From the sounds of it, she's got her health. You know, we could probably go on and on, but you see, the immediate resp her response, even in her desperation, is, I've got nothing. The reality is, God has given her a lot. And as far as the jars... What if this is a woman who was mean-spirited, lived like a hermit, had no friends? How many jars would she have been able to collect? Probably just a very few, right? But we can tell by reading this story that this woman must have had a lot of friends. She had a lot of neighbors. What an amazing asset, right? A lot of neighbors. So that when the time, the desperate time came, she went out into the, the community or sent her sons out and they just collected jars. And we know it was a lot because... When this whole thing started, they go in and they shut the door and they start pouring the oil. The oil just keeps coming and coming and coming. And when does the oil stop flowing? When the jars run out. And so she then reports to the prophet. Okay, look at this. And the prophet goes, okay, see all this right here? All these jars? You just take this and you're, you're debt-free. There was enough to pay off all of her debts. She's been set free. And, by the way, 
you can live on all of this. This is the God we serve. God takes what there is and then he multiplies it and uses it for his kingdom. We, we partner with an organization in India called the Hindustani Covenant Church. I was with Dr. Boaz last month and we visited the church. And this church does a lot of amazing work and maybe he's referred to some of it. But one of the things, they're experts in water. By the way, I'm thankful for the church people in this church that are interested in water as well. Thank you for being a part of Project Blue. A lot of those funds go to the Hindustani Covenant Church in their work with water. But they, back in the 60s, they started a, in, in a cooperation with Sweden, with the Covenant Church in Sweden, they set a goal. This is a, when we serve God, we sometimes set our goals too small. This is a little church that was in the hundreds, not even to a thousand yet. And they said, we're going to set a goal of a thousand wells for India. They didn't say five or ten. They said a thousand goals for India. And do you know, within 20 years or so, they had done it. UNICEF heard about this little church in Maharashtra state with the headquarters or the, the work mainly in Sholapur where they made uh, pumps. And they, they said, you know, we've heard about you. And we are trying to find a pump that will last longer, be more effective. Um, can you help us? And there was an engineer from Sweden who actually knew a lot about that, but there were also the, the local Indian church leaders and those working in water, and they got together, and in 1986, they presented this new pump. This is it. Some of you will say it looks backwards. The handles, they move the handle over because it's easier to catch water, pump and catch the water on the side you're on. By the way, this is not the pump. Somebody in a church, or I was just, sharing with somebody they said that's the pump no this is the model of the pump <laughs> do you know unicef took this they gave them the rights they took this pump and began uh, promoting it throughout india all over india and it was so popular that they started promoting it around the world do you know this little church of hundreds in india are the ones that are responsible for this pump you know, in the world today, conservative estimates are that there are two to three million of these hand pumps. It's called the India Mark II deep well hand pump, the largest deep well hand pump, selling deep well hand pump in the world. I go to Haiti. I, I go to Africa. I go to all, all these different places where in different countries I see this pump. And I don't call it the India Mark II deep well hand pump. I call it the covenant pump. <laughs> It's made, it comes from this little church in India. God took what they had, and look what God has done. Miracles aren't just something that happened in the Old Testament and then around the time of Jesus. God is still taking what little we have and multiplying it and doing amazing things in the world. I'm here today to share a little bit about some of our partners that I believe they understand this notion because they're in situations where people will look at their country or look at what they're doing and say, wow, you've got nothing. And they would say, no, no, no. <laughs> no, we have things, and God is taking what we have and using it for his kingdom. I just got back this week from Leon and Monterrey, Mexico. In Monterrey, Mexico, 
there's an organization called Fundafam. They were celebrating their 20th anniversary. And this is an amazing organization that when they look at their community and they ask, what do we have? They say, a lot of kids. <laughs> and you know, they don't just look at the kids as kids to try to help out a little bit here and there and hope that they have a better future. They look at the kids and say, you know what we have? We got the future leaders of our organization. So as the time has gone on, as I visit, these kids grow up. And you know now, most of the staff of Fundafam come from this at-risk community where they are located. They are now leading the organization because they saw in the kids in the community the future leaders. This is what we've got. Oh, this is the, this is the staff. Sorry, I just added this one. I, this is, picture was just from last Sunday. Amazing group of people. If, I wish I had hours this morning to tell some of the testimonies. Um, like one of the young women in the middle comes from the community, poor, never thought she'd have an education. She now has a master's in psychology. She's in charge of the youth of this organization, coordinator for youth, and she has her own private practice, and she's a professor. And she just says, I, I never would have dreamed this possible. Personal experience. Gongabai was a commercial sex worker in the red light district of Pune in India. And this Hindustani covenant church that I mentioned in, when I talked about the pump, they somehow got in contact with Gongabai because she had a son that had a congenital heart defect. It's a long story, but in the process, she got transformed, was able to come out from the red light district after 15 years, and she had been sold as a young girl, deceived and sold to a brothel. She was able to come out and... And the Hindustani Covenant Church said, maybe God is introducing us to a ministry here. Let's see, what do we have to do? What kind of resources do we have? Who do we have? Who should lead this? And finally, they recognized, wait a second, Gongabai is the one with the 15 years of living in the, in the community. She has the relationship. She, knows the, she has the network. She has trust. So Gongabai became the leader of the ministry. And she no longer is to this day because she's moved on, but she, now there are others, and they have been able to find opportunities to be able to serve the young children who are in the community, who are stuck. Sometimes there's the very small ones just go under the mother's bed while she's doing her work, but they found a safe place now for the kids, and you know who found the safe place? Another member of the community. We were just... Dr. Boaz and I were just there, and we had a chance to meet some of the women and hear, hear the powerful stories of transformation that have been coming about. As we were leaving Pune, one of the greatest blessings for me was we stopped, and I'm sorry, I'm going to go back. Uh, see, the woman standing next to me, she's 19 years old, she's had four pregnancies, one of three of she had three forced abortions one somehow she was able to have a child she was sold when she was about 12 years old to a brothel a particular man took interest in her and used and abused her for all these years and she finally was able to be set free she has a fourth grade education she said i want a real job 
And so she, she's part of making the communion wafers, which I understand you've used at this church. It's one of the things she does with everyone else. But she said, I want a job outside too. And they negotiated with McDonald's. And they're supposed to, in India, you can't work at McDonald's unless you have a high school education. But we, they didn't even tell us, where we, as we were leaving town, they pulled out and she walked out and she is the proudest 19-year-old mother who is saying, I have a real job at McDonald's. I have respect. I am earning a living. It's a powerful thing. I used to kind of look down, you know, when people said they worked at McDonald's, I well, I hope you can get rid of that job and move on. For this young woman, this has made a whole change in her life. It's, it's her road to transformation, which is, is going to continue. And of course, the women in the Home of Hope are also making these communion wafers that I believe that you have used here at the church. It's a powerful testimony when they say, we used to sell our bodies, but now we have the privilege of making the body of Christ. In some of the communities where we're working with partners, there are, there's work with women who have very little education and are living in abject poverty. And one of those places in, is in South Africa, in the KwaZulu-Natal district. And we work with an organization there that brings women together. And I'll tell you, when you bring women together and allow them to come to a place where they are caring for each other, supporting one another. These women are saving together. They are uh, starting small businesses together. They are changed. And as in the process, these women in their transformation have a change of heart and mind. These two women were walking down the street in the community of Masinga, and uh, they said, oh, these are some of the women that are in our groups. I said, wow, they're carrying water. Can I take their photo? Would you ask them? And I, they asked permission. And I, it, from the looks on their faces now, it doesn't look like they were that happy with me taking their photo, but they let me take their photo. And while I took it, the, the executive director, Audrey, said, you probably think these women are carrying water for their families. They're carrying water for families of people who don't, able, aren't able to get their own water. Because now they care. They have been changed so much. They say, God has blessed us. God has changed us. Why? So that we can serve others. So that we can bring about change in our community. What do they have in their community? They have transformed women who are transforming it. And so they go and they work in people's yards who can't do it themselves. This, this particular place, the, the father was in a chair because he was, um, had some sort of an accident and couldn't get up. And the mother had to work some distance away. So they were taking care of the yard. They were doing laundry. They were cooking, taking care of kids. All to serve others. And then as we're leaving, they see this is widow so-and-so who's, uh, she was living on the edge of town and she got a monthly small stipend from the government because she's a widow and she's old, but there are some bad men out there who kept stealing it from her. And they said, they got together and they said, this, we're not going to let this continue. And they said to the, woman, to the widow, we're going to get a piece of property for you with their resources. They got a little bit of help from the outside, but it was mainly their resources. And with their own hands, they built her a house. And on, my, on a recent trip, I went back when the house was done, and this woman was just, she just couldn't stop praising God. We were trying to talk with her, and she just kept saying, praise the Lord, in, in Zulu. But, but um, she was so excited that she was now in the center of the community and safe and being cared for 
by these women. There she is outside her house. Sometimes when you work with the poor, the immediate thought is they have nothing, so we've got to somehow figure out how to get them the capital and the resources. In Somaliland, which is a semi-autonomous region of Somalia, one of the most dangerous places in the world, this is not. I went and, and visited, um, but it is almost 100% Muslim. And this organization that we partner with are working with these women, helping them to come to an understanding that they are worthy of dignity and respect, created in the image of God and capable. And so they begin saving the equivalent of 20 cents a week. And eventually they get to the place where they can start their own businesses and tailoring. And they can also, st they've started small shops. They're so proud of their accomplishments. And as we, we met one group that obviously has been a part of this, and these women now are looking up, looking at us, <laughs> because their lives have been changed. They're no longer saying, I'm nothing. I have no education. I can't do anything. One of the issues of, especially dominant culture, uh, United States and Canada, is that we love doing things for people. I mean, my father was somebody who, he took care of all the widows in our neighborhood and pulled me along. We cleaned mowed their lawns and weeded their gardens, fixed their cars. And it, my dad just loved it. It made him feel good. And he was very generous. But, you know, my dad also took care of me, my car. I got a 1951 straight-eight Pontiac for $32 when I was 15 and a half years old. My dad said, don't worry, I'll fix it. And he fixed it up a little bit. It wasn't the greatest car, but it, was, it ran. <laughs> And whenever it broke down, my dad would fix it, my dad would fix it, and it was great. And my dad loved doing that for me. But eventually my dad died. And where did that leave me? <laughs> totally <laughs> unable to fix a car. I, there's an organization in Honduras called Cose Pradil. Cose Pradil is a local organization that understands people have capability. People deserve the dignity of being able to do what they are capable of doing. And so the, we are partnering there in these amazing water systems. This is also part of Project Blue, where they tap into mountain springs and bring it down to a tank, which is then uh, the water is divided and goes to different places in the community. But the people are the ones that do it. They do all the labor. So when we get to the place where it's the project is finished, the people are so proud. They're saying, wow, look, with God's help, look what we've accomplished. And when we went to the inauguration service, at the inauguration service, yes, there's a few people like me there that they're saying, thank you for your help in this. But when they prayed, they said, God, you have taught us that we can work together and do amazing things. Thank you for your help for us. This woman got up and said, I was raised to believe that I would be carrying water for the rest of my life, multiple times a day. And the water that I got out of the stream was usually contaminated. She said, but look, we have clean water here in the community. Give thanks to God for that. And then she took that jar, she threw it in the air, and she screamed, never again! And then it came down with a crash, and it was very dramatic. It broke into all kinds of pieces. 
And I went and grabbed one. <laughs> and I keep this as a reminder of what God does when we recognize that there are people and resources that are there that deserve the dignity of being able to take care of themselves. Expertise. Gomali is a woman in Laos who is incredible. The short of it is this is, we get to partner with Gomali in this organization called Mulberries. It's a silk producing co-op. She's been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. She is a believer in a communist country. The government actually knows that she's a believer and yet requests her to work with the ethnic minorities to provide them income generation programs as they have been moved around the country. And so one of the things that she does is she taps into, she understands that this is a culture. Many of these minority groups are weaving cultures from way back. Some of them have lost it. Some of them have become weak at it. She, ra she has helped raise their ex expertise in raising mulberry bushes, in, in raising silkworms. This, the worms then spin the cocoon, and from the cocoon, the thread is, is spun. And then woven into beautiful fabric. And all in the process, this wonderful woman of God is, in a very appropriate way, sharing her love, but also, especially among the young people who are coming in, discipling them. And these are the young people who are going to be then sent back to their villages as leaders. It's a powerful work that we get to be a part of. But she recognized that these women already have an affinity for, for weaving. She's just raised it to a whole new level. You can go on website, Mulberries Incorporated, and see that it's very expensive stuff too, so you better have a lot of money if you want to buy it. <laughs> but it's really great material. In Kenya, we're part of an organization called Jito Keze, and, and Pini is the woman who's, she's from the community, she founded the organization, she's still not even 40 years old, but she's a very wise woman, and she knows agriculture, and she knows finance, and she knows water and sanitation, nutrition, and, and uh, uh, the environmental studies, and caring for God's creation. She's doing all of these things in their organization, but she said, you know, without, without addressing the issue of peace, we're never going to get very far, because that part of the country, West Pokot County, is a county with a lot of conflict. And so her own team, they talk about peace and peace building. And so instead of a tug of war where you're, you have a, a one rope and you're trying to pull the other over the line, they do the tug of peace where everyone is pulling together. And this spills over into their work. As I went and visited... Um, You, uh, yeah, there we go. I went and visited this community. They talked about all the transformations, spiritual, economic, social, great stuff happening, but they said, you know, there's still the neighboring clan called the Martaquets that we are in conflict with. There's been decades of killing, of stealing cattle and other animals, of fighting over land, and they said, you know, we realized that we needed to address this, and they did this profound thing. They went to them and said, Okay, we want peace. Let's do this. Let's take a piece of property that we work on together. That in itself 
was probably the most important step. They went to them and said, can we work together? These enemies. And the, I don't, I mean, I wasn't there and it was told briefly, so I don't know exactly how it went. Somehow the Madaquets said, okay. And they tilled the soil together. They planted the seed. They cared for the, the crop. Then they harvested. And guess what they did with the harvest? They shared the harvest. And now these people have gotten to know, the enemies have gotten to know each other. And the conflict level has been greatly reduced. It's not gone. There's still struggles. But what a powerful example for those of us in the rest of the world who have enemies, who have people who are in opposition to us, to get together and get to know them. What do you have in your community? We've got peacemakers. And of course, one of the greatest assets of any community is the local church. God uses the church to be able to spread hope. During this time of coronavirus, I, this is what the church has to be. We have to be a symbol of hope to the rest of the world. And a few years back in, in 2016, there was a devastating earthquake in Ecuador. And the La Victoria Covenant Church, a small church, smaller than this one, um, said when the earthquake hit right in our immediate area, the damage is not bad. But in other parts of the city of Manta, it was very bad. And they said, we're going to respond. And they, they, they did basically an inventory. What do we have in this church? And somebody small, owned a small business with some vehicles, and he donated the vehicle. Somebody else, a couple people who had small companies said, well, I'm going to pay my employees to respond <laughs> rather than do the work in the factory. Somebody else had access to a water filter. And then they took offerings, and they, they took a very generous offering, and people began giving. It was from their own assets. And they, helped, they have helped people who have been devastated to start small businesses again. Covenant World Relief's logo is up there. We were able to be a part. We still are a part because this church has not stopped. I was just there in November. This woman who lost her husband and two children because her house collapsed on them while she was away was devastated. And, and the church cared for her. It took over, over a year to recover her kind of her psychological well-being, to get over the trauma. I mean, she'll never be over the trauma, but to be able to get to the place where she could actually move forward. Her life has been transformed, and she's now started this small business because the church cares for her, and she's now a part of the church. So I close with these questions. Simple, yet I hope you don't forget them. What do you have in your house? Think about it. What has God given you? And a lot of times, I'm afraid we say, yeah, we have a little bit, but really not enough to make a difference. I hope, if nothing else you've heard today, that God takes what we have. What did, what did Jesus say when they were with 4,000, Matthew chapter 15, when they were with 4,000 men, so we know it's thousands of people, and they were hungry, and Jesus wanted to feed them, He's the Messiah, the Son of God. All he had to do was snap his fingers and they all could have had, you know, some sort of a, a meal in front of them. Instead, when the disciples said, when he, you know, we can't feed all these people. We don't have enough to, to buy bread for everybody. We don't know where we'd get it. What was Jesus' question? How many loaves do you have? Remember, they, they said, oh, we've got seven and a few fish. What a ridiculous question. Jesus, there's 
thousands, probably 10, 15, 20,000 people here. And you're asking how many loaves we got, and we got seven. What are we going to do with that? We know what God did with that, right? God took what was there. Everyone was fed with leftovers. We serve an amazing God. What do you have in your house? What do you have in your church? If we were to go around and talk about your backgrounds, your, your education, your training, your experience, your expertise, what an amazing array of resources that are right in this church. What do you have in your community? Sometimes when we're addressing issues in the, in the area around us, we forget that there are other like-minded people out there. There are other churches, there are other organizations, and this is one of the things I love about our partners. They're always looking for ways to collaborate. There are others who are doing it. Let's join with them. This is what the Covenant Church did in the beginning. There were these individual churches that said, yeah, we can do a little bit here and there, but imagine what we can do in God's kingdom if we join together with others. So I just ask that you take these questions and we're going to pray. I want you to think about them. Listen to God. What is he saying to you? Let's pray. God, we are thankful that in your wisdom, in the way you work, you can take whatever little thing we have, you can multiply it, and you do, and you use it in amazing ways. I thank you, God, that you've allowed us to be your children, and you've allowed us to join with you in this amazing mission that you are engaged with here in Vernon Hills, Chicago, Illinois, United States, and around the world. I thank you, God, that is. Sometimes we look at the world and we refer to places as God-forsaken. Remind us that that's a lie, that there is no God-forsaken place in the world, that you are present, active, and working, and that you invite us to be a part of what you're doing. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all rise together.